I'm Chaplain Jacob Scott of the Oregon National Guard. This is the Hope in the Trenches podcast. We're going forward. I'll sit down for conversations with people who offer interesting and informative perspectives on finding strength for life and work in the trenches and even improving our spiritual posture. Whether you feel like you're under heavy bombardment or ready to go over the top toward a new objective, it's good to be with you. Our guest today is Mike Irwin, author of a new book, Leadership is a Relationship, How to Put People First in a Digital World. Mike graduated from West Point in 2002 with a Bachelor of Science degree in economics. He was commissioned as an intelligence officer, serving in three combat tours with the 1st Cavalry Division and 3rd Special Forces Group. His service includes deployment to Operation Iraqi Freedom in 0405 that involved the battles of Fallujah and Najaf. He was there at the same time as some of our Oregon Guardsmen. Mike also deployed to Kandahar, Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom in 0607 and in 2009. On those tours, he worked with NATO forces to include serving as a lead intelligence planner for one of the largest NATO-led combat operations in history. Following his third deployment, Mike attended the University of Michigan, where he studied positive psychology and leadership under one of the co-founders of positive psychology, Dr. Chris Peterson. Positive psychology is the, the genesis of the Army's resiliency programs. He then went on to serve as an assistant professor in psychology and leadership at the U.S. Military Academy, West Point, from 2011 to 2014. While in graduate school in 2010, Mike founded the nonprofit organization Team Red, White, and Blue, also known as Team RWB. Team RWB's mission is to enrich the lives of America's veterans by connecting them to their communities through physical and social activity. They have 146,000 members and 212 chapters across the country. Mike's on his second tour as the executive director of that organization. Then in 2015, he co-founded The Positivity Project, a nonprofit that has taken up the mission to empower America's youth to build positive relationships by teaching positive psychology's 24 character strengths. With 425 partner schools, the organization reaches 260,000 children daily. Currently, he's the CEO of the Character and Leadership Center, where they promote the idea that effective leadership doesn't just happen on its own but requires time, resources, and prioritization. With the Character and Leadership Center, he leads seminars and speaks on five foundational areas for effective leadership. Positive psychology, character, relationships, interactions, and solitude. My co-host today is Mr. Stephen DeLuna, a state preventionist with the Oregon National Guard's Integrated Primary Prevention Workforce. Stephen joined the Oregon Guard's service member and family support team as the Yellow Ribbon Coordinator back in September 2019. Then in February 2021, he became the lead for the Resilience and Risk Reduction Program. His professional background is in education and teaching at many different grade levels and ages. Before the Guard, he spent three years as an instructor for the Department of Homeland Security. Stephen's a lifelong learner who believes in people, growth, and a positive mindset communication, and community. And this is Stephen, the second time appearing on Hope in the Trenches. Our producer is Sergeant First Class Zach Holden, a public affairs specialist and first sergeant for the Oregon Guard with our mobile public affairs detachment. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today on Hope in the Trenches. Hey, great to be here. 
So positivity has been an important theme in in your life and work. I want to go back just a little bit, and can you tell us how you ended up in the military, and how did that eventually lead you to the field of positive psychology and the work that you're doing today in lots of various sectors? So like a lot of things in life, it's a winding road. It's a journey. Uh, you know, I grew up in Syracuse, New York, central New York, and neither of my parents went to college, and they said, hey, like we really think that, you know, our kids should aspire, you know, to try to go to college one day. And so uh, I was the oldest of four and I, I was able to get into West Point and I was there for four years and September 11th, 2001 took place at the start of my senior year. So okay. things got really serious very mm-hmm. quickly. Mm-hmm. And then I went out into the army as an intelligence officer in the first cavalry division in third special forces group. And um, I had the chance to deploy three times, once to Iraq, uh, as we talked about earlier with you know, a unit that was attached to us from the Oregon National Guard. And then I deployed to Afghanistan twice, 06, 07, and 09. Okay. You know, and in that window of time, I saw a lot of change in some of my soldiers who in garrison might be really struggling, and then they deploy and they're like laser focused or yeah. vice versa. They're doing really yeah. great back home, but then you put them in a, in a very challenging adversity-filled environment and they would struggle. And I found that to be very interesting. So when I was selected to go back and teach at West Point, uh, the U.S. Military Academy. It's a five-year program. They send you to graduate school for two years, then mm-hmm. you go teach for three. And you know, I was, when I was looking at what to study, I was I was actually an econ major, so I wanted to go back for my MBA. Um, but you know, I was not selected for that program. I was selected for psychology. Okay. And you know, uh, I didn't necessarily know a whole lot about psychology at the time, but the one part of it that I did learn about was from a woman named Major Dina Brager. Is this field the discipline of positive psychology and uh, and she taught me a lot about like, hey, there's this guy named Dr. Chris Peterson. Uh, there's Dr. Seligman. There's the work that they're doing into character, into relationships, into resilience, into post-traumatic growth. There's all this really exciting stuff that, that they are looking at holistically, but also and especially through the lens of the military. And I think that you would be a great fit. So, yeah, I started reading up as much as I possibly could on the field of positive psychology, applied to Michigan. Chris fought for me to get in because I was a very abnormal candidate. Most candidates come right out of graduate school with a heavy psychology background. And, you know, I was an econ major with seven years of intelligence uh, officer experience in the army. And so, yeah, he really advocated for me to, to be accepted. And, and from there, kind of the rest is history. I just fell in love with this approach to, you know, looking to find the good in situations, to helping people be resilient, to helping them to develop relationships, to become better people. Like that whole feel the positive psychology really has become my life's work and my life's calling. Do you remember when that word resilience kind of became part of your lexicon? Because I, I feel like it was probably around that time, 2009, uh, mm-hmm. maybe even, well, probably 2007, 2009, somewhere in there that the Army really started talking a lot about resiliency once we realized that the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan weren't, weren't going to be very quickly resolved mm-hmm. and, totally. and people started making multiple deployments. First time I thought really about the word resilience was when I was at West Point as a cadet, you okay. know, because you're you're so tired all the time. There's so many pressures and so many things going on that you know they talked to us about the importance of being resilient. But it was, you know, in a very safe environment. That, yeah. that kind of resilience is different than life resilience or combat, yeah. re, you know, resilience, uh, resilience in response to trauma or major life adversity. But yeah, you're exactly right. It was right around 2007 and eight when they were developing the comprehensive soldier fitness program, mm-hmm. uh, when they were starting to look at, hey, what can we do? I'll never forget my battalion commander in the battles of Najaf and Fallujah, 
who is now general, four-star general Jim Rainey, the commander of Futures Command out of Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. You know, he talked about it and described it very succinctly. Is it, we do PT for our bodies, this is PT for our minds. Right. Right. And and he had an ability to take something that could be very complicated and make it very understandable and digestible. And that's what it is, right? Like developing resilience is not just something that you either have or you don't have like physical fitness for sure. Some people are naturally gifted mm -hmm. at, at being fast runners or being strong, but you still have to work at it if you want to be fast or be strong when it counts the most. And so, yeah, it was around 07, 08 as I was starting to do some research to help get me into Michigan. And then when I was there, Dr. Peterson was working a lot on the comprehensive soldier fitness program, the global assessment tool, uh, research with the army into post-traumatic growth. And he mm -hmm. was doing a lot of research that looked at, resilience in the military. Yeah, that was something that I, I hadn't really thought of um, for a long time, that, that idea of post-traumatic growth and, and how coming out of experiences like that, we can not just, not just survive, but thrive. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the, what's the big idea of positive psychology? Because it's more than just resilience, right? Right. Sure. So when you can boil it down to the simplest way possible it is the scientific study of what goes right in life and what is good about people and so yes that entails resilience and bouncing back from adversity but it also you know entails studying what is good about people mm -hmm. uh, what is good about communities and about relationships and about organizations you know positive organizational studies so it's really about you know not neglecting that there are problems there are evils there are you know uh, terrible relationships. And there's all kinds of things that, about people that is frustrating and challenging. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also this other side. And let's not uh, overstudy one side or the other. It's, it's simply advocating for effort to study what goes right in life. And so that's really, I can break it down as, as basic as possible. That's what it is. Studying you know, through the scientific method uh, what goes right in life and what's good in people and in their relationships and their organizations. And so then, when you when you think about what's good and right about people, you spend a, you spend a lot of time and in, in a lot of your work now outside the military has has focused on character strengths and and attributes. What what role does this? Uh, well, what are what are some of these character strengths and and what role does that play in in the field of positive psychology and what you're trying to achieve? For sure. So when you go to the research, uh, again, there's no like no one kind of just handed someone a book and said, this is character. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it took a very robust effort. They, they read everything, religious, historical, philosophical, astronomy. I mean, you name it, every major book um, in writing from as many cultures as they could possibly get their hands on a team of like 80 researchers over a two and a half year period. And they developed this book about 800 pages thick called character strengths and virtues. Hmm. Um, it's not to say that it's like the, like, the approved solution. It's right. simply saying that it is by far, uh, it is the result of by far the most rigorous and thorough investigation into what character is that we have in the world today. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was absolutely incredible to see them take all these different writings and say, we found a lot of overlap depending on what, regardless of what society you're in, regardless of when it was written, regardless if it was, the Bible, or if it, mm -hmm. you know, was, you know, uh, Nietzsche, you know, I mean, like, uh, they found a lot of overlap. So character strengths include, and there's 24 of them, by the way. Um, 
and anyone can go take their, this assessment, viacharacter.org yep. uh, for free and get your own assessment. But integrity, enthusiasm, gratitude, bravery, forgiveness, humility, kindness, humor, curiosity, right? And so there's, there's 24 different strengths that we all have. And we all have them in varying amounts. Mm -hmm. And that's the big takeaway, though, is that everybody has curiosity. Even the person who seemingly never asks a question in their life, right? they are still curious. Uh, everyone has the ability to be humble, to have humility. might not seem like that, um, but they do. And so, yeah, there's 24 strengths. They make up, you know, they fall under this umbrella of character. And together, they, they paint this picture of, of what is character in a human being. So, Mike, one of the things that I love seeing working with individuals around the resilience conversation, positive, positive psychology, is you always, when you have a group, you have a couple of those individuals that have the arms crossed and kind of like, all right, you know, go ahead, roll this through, let's wrap this up. Yep. Um, and then you quickly see that shift of how passionate and how open people are for that conversation and the experience that they have. Um, you're working with so many different groups and doing such great work. Do you see... Do you feel you have a lot of uphill battles in that conversation or are people pretty open right out of the gate? Yeah, they tend to be, you know, I think pretty open, you know, uh, it's, it's just a, nothing else. I think people are curious to know more about themselves almost always. That's why they take lots of tests to be able to gain a deeper understanding where I, I think sometimes it feels like pushing a rock uphill is do people agree on the priority uh, of how important this is to have the conversations about character strengths, about how to develop these, what I just call human skills, hmm. you know? And so whether it's in school, so the Positivity Project, I co-founded it with a fellow veteran. We're in about 875 schools across America. Um, there's definitely obviously a lot of schools that really buy into this, but there's also a lot of them out there that would care much more about like their students' test scores um, than they do about, you know, whether or not they're building character strengths in their students. Uh, in companies, when it comes to leadership, uh, they care more about, you know, the bottom line, whether it be profit or, um, you know, sometimes in the military re readiness, like any organization, uh, I understand they've got their, their key performance indicators, their things that determine whether they're being successful or not. Um, so it boils down to a question of, do you believe that developing character and building better people, better students, better soldiers, better, um, you know, workers that that will then drive better outcomes? Or do you think that focusing on those key performance indicators and those outcomes, you know, supersedes, you know, building good people, right? And I think that almost mm -hmm. everyone would agree that they, we want both, but what most people do is they kind of prioritize the things that are going to get them, you know, recognition and success right. uh, before building those human skills and those character, you know, strengths. Yeah, that's so several years ago, then acting secretary of the army, the honorable Patrick Murphy, he said that his, he popularized the phrase that every soldier is a soldier for life, a leader of character for a lifetime of service. And when you talk about building character, how, what does that look like to, to develop character? Cause we're talking about the core of what makes a person who, who they are. Mm -hmm. How do you, yes. how do you, how do you develop that? Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it's, it's definitely long. There's no finish line. It is uh, a lifelong process. Uh, some people have gotten uh, you know, head starts based upon perhaps having really good examples or role models or right. parents or teachers or coaches, you know, in their lives uh, when others have not. But but really, it does boil down to the fact that, you know, it's a journey and um, it's it's lifelong. And because of that and the fact that it's hard, I understand why people tend to 
often put it lower down on, on the list of things mm -hmm. that they care about, you know, uh, in the people they lead or in people, you know, that are in their, in their ranks or in their organization. Right? Until, of course, there is a character flaw, a big one, yeah, right, right, that right. then causes a huge problem, right, for the organization. And then it's like, oh, boy, no, 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 we really care about the character. You know, the, be, yeah. the behavior of, of our people. Um, so, yeah, it is. It is a little bit tricky, though, um, you know, getting people to, you know, to really embrace the idea that building character um, is worth the effort because it is hard. There is no finish line. It's often squishy. You know, it's not like you can sit there and give somebody a test or just observe them for an hour and, you know, follow them around with a clipboard. And be like, oh, yeah, your character is yeah. doing great. I mean, it's. It, it, you know, our, our self-assessment, the light never goes off. Like, you know, when we're alone lying in bed, it, what we're thinking about or what we're doing when we're on our own or how we treat people um, anonymously or, you know, or, or online, online or in real life. There's just, it's everything. It touches everything. And so, you know, I think a lot of people like to measure what is easily measured um, yeah. because then they have a better, more certainty on whether or not they're, what they're doing is working or not. And the character just isn't that. It's very complicated. It's very messy. There is no finish line. And because of that, I think that people often just assume, hey, that is like swimming out way out in the ocean, you know, at 2,000 feet. Like I am mm -hmm. not, that is not where I want to put my priority. I want to stay here on the shore. Yeah, and it, well, and it, there's no one size fits all when it, when it comes to, to developing character. You're right. Um, well, and I think maybe that's one of the big ideas in the the book that you recently wrote called Leadership as a Relationship, right? And you've got to you've yep. got to build and foster those relationships in in order, you know, because building character can't really be done at a distance, can it? No, I mean, yeah, it's very 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 difficult, very very difficult to. I mean, uh, this is one of the things, not just building character, but even building relationships. You know, um, there are certain things I think that we're hardwired, you know, in our DNA, in our bones to do. And uh, the idea of spending time together in the same room, high five and fist bump and hugging, you know, uh, in real life, it just it lands differently than if it's over a screen. Right. And this is definitely way better. Like yeah. we're seeing yeah. each other here on a screen. That's way better yeah. than if we were just talking on a phone, you know, um, which is way better than if nothing. Right. We, so the developments of technology have certainly brought about a lot, lot, lot more of like decent interactions, right? But ultimately the most powerful, the most meaningful interactions in life almost all the time happen when you're in the same car, the same house, the same venue, the same room as other people. And, and that's, that's the hard part, you know, but same thing with building character. I mean, like it's, it's often like, you know, a knife fight, it's something done up close, you know, done best up close. Um, you know, you, you, you have a hard time developing it, like just reading about it or taking an online course about it. Uh, mm -hmm. Ultimately, de developing character is as much about it being a, an experiential learning process as it is an intellectual process. So you can learn about it, you can hear about it, you can think about it, talk about it, but ultimately you got to do it. Right? Yeah. And you got to do various things and get feedback on how you did and reflect yourself, right? My first book, Lead Yourself First. You have to you have to reflect on what you did and how you did it, hmm. right? So that you can make progress and you can grow your character. But uh, that's both of those things are increasingly um, less popular in the world today because of how fast the world is moving and how much noise and distractions we have in our lives. And Mike, you talked about you know that in person kind of connection, right? That fist bump. You kind of like I just all of a sudden I felt that energy of that, and you know us being here virtually. In your yeah. work. Um, 
with youth, and I think this applies to the organization because we kind of have conversations sometimes about the generational gaps in tech and uh, you know how we're kind of adapting as humans in terms of using tech to connect. How do the youth kind of do with that? Do you see generational gaps in that conversation? Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. So to be clear, I think that like every generation, you know, has its own sort of addiction problems with, you know, technology. Actually, I think that like a group that often gets overlooked is like people who are like 60s and older, <laughs> you know, um, people who are often retired and whatnot. Uh, you know, I think have got a lot of time on their hands and they find themselves addicted to their iPad or to their screen or to their phone. Um, and actually the people I think who probably struggle with the least are people who are like the busiest, like, you know, people sort of like in like the 35 to 50 or 55 range, but Mm -hmm. certainly generationally, as you get into millennials and definitely Gen Z, it's just hardwired into their life experience. Like they don't even think it's basically, it's like an appendage, right? It's like, it's essentially like on their arm, you know what I mean? So the ability to separate yourself from your device, because it's not just your phone, it's your access to email, it's text messaging, it's your GPS, it's your bank access to your bank account. It's, it's your social media feeds. It's the weather. It's just so many things, um, that people often just are, are, especially younger folks, like they just can never even separate themselves from Mm -hmm. their phone. And so, yeah, we definitely see generational differences here in that, in terms of, you know, people being very good at interacting digitally or virtually or remotely, but then you put them in the same room or in real life with people and they struggle. You know, uh, that's that's definitely, you know, a struggle that we see happening for people who are 30 and below right now, um, you know, that I hear about from lots of different companies and organizations is that they're actually really good working digitally or remotely. Um, but even being really good at digital remote work has, you know, a lot of limitations because right. if you don't get together in person and then also thrive in person, then the people who get together in person are ultimately the ones who are going to get the most done, you know, because Real relationships require real time in person and real relationships ultimately are what drive success in most organizations. Yeah, no, we've, we've talked about, you, you've touched on a couple of really important things. I, I heard a, a rabbi speak a few months ago, uh, Rabbi Elon, Bab, uh, Elon Babchuk, uh, but he pointed out that while we, we, we can tend to pathologize those generational gaps, but we do share something important in common across those generational gaps, and that's that need for connection. Mm-hmm. And uh, another, another book, Dr. Paul White uh, talked about the five languages of appreciation in the, work, in the workplace. There was a, there's a chapter in there on expressing appreciation in a distributed environment. That was even before the pandemic. Um, but he said that kind of really the, the pitfall there is especially when we're not interacting personally, we can reduce people to their outputs. And focus mm-hmm. it more and more on productivity instead of building that connection. You shared some important ideas in your book about uh, pl- planting the seeds of connection and and building connection. And you, you even point out that social media can plant the seeds for for person to person relationships and and de- development. Um, how how do you build that connection? Maybe especially when you're geographically dispersed because that's really that's i think that's the big struggle in the guard and the reserves mm-hmm. too is that we have so few real person-to-person touch points with right. our people and and most of the time it is just a quick 
digital connection here, whether that's a text or a phone call or, or an email and very few person-to-person touch points. So yeah. how do you develop connection? Yeah, this is a really important point that like, you know, so even free, you know, COVID and everything, like there's already a lot of people doing remote work. The, the National yeah. Guard is one of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> For a yeah. long time, right? Uh, but there's also lots of organizations including Team Red, White, and Blue that were, you know, permanently remote since we were founded. Right. Um, you know, and so I think thinking through like how to make those uh, in-person touch points as meaningful as possible, right? So like I think about this from like the National Guard sense of like, boy, it'd be great if you could do as little compliance training or little like, you know, transactional work as possible on the on drill weekends and do as much relationship building as possible, right? Training you know, together, exercising together, getting to know each other better, book study, like, like those kinds of things to be able to get people closer to each other emotionally so that when they go back, that they feel more connected, right? Mm-hmm. Second part of this is no doubt how you use technology. This is why like, you know, I'm not like a Luddite, like I've got an Apple whatever, right. 13 and I've got like, you know, social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, you know, so um, I think that the key becomes how do you use those tools so that those tools work for you, not you work for them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we can make these tools work for us. like you know, in, in meaningful ways, like there's Slack channels, there's all kinds of things or whatever it is. I think the answer is like, it's gotta be, uh, you know, as, as concise as possible. Like you, you can't give people too much, right? You're like, hey, we want you to be on this Slack channel and checking your email here and on this, you know, Facebook group. And there's all, like, like whatever it is, I think you've got to choose that one channel. And so for us at Team Red White and Blue, it's Slack and we use Slack. And like, that is a team building, relationship building, community building device. Well, while we're everywhere, including one person in Hawaii, one in Alaska, and then all over the country, like we stay connected to each other through our interactions on Slack, you know? And I think that, you know, doing that is, is also, you know, helpful. And and the last part about that is that it's not just the transactional. It's not just, all right, Mm -hmm. who got their stuff done, right? Who got whatever they need to get done. But like, it's sometimes it's sharing pictures in there. Hey, like my wife just, you know, we just had a baby. Like, here's a picture. Hey, you know, I just went out and, and I did some shooting today. Like, you know, it, it's, I think the ability to talk about things that are personal, you know, a little bit to complement the professional, you know, and I just think that's a very different, um, you know, way of thinking about things than, than how a lot of people think about it, you know, yeah. today, which is that like we use technology to, to track things and to be transactional. It's like, no, like mm. it's got to be at least half of that has got to be relationship oriented in my view. I think that's a great kind of reorientation toward technology in what do they say keep keep the main thing the main thing and the main thing is the the people uh so that we can accomplish the mission because for several years now the army has emphasized this philosophy of people first and and putting putting people first um yeah but you know at the end of the day too we still have to accomplish our our mission but you know, can you use technology to to help keep the the main thing, the main thing, not just not just transactional? I, I appreciate that that orientation. Now, with Absolutely. the with the work that you do for the the center for uh, excuse me, the character and leadership center, yes, um, you, you you talk about how uh, in order to be a strong leader, you have to truly believe that other people matter. And to, therefore, to understand that leadership is a relationship, we haven't even really talked about kind of what leadership is. But why why is it important to to understand leadership that way as a relationship? Sure. So I think great question. So for me, it starts with what is your framework? What is your operational definition of leadership? So 
Uh, I had the honor of, of basically observing like one of the world's greatest thinkers on leadership, Jim Collins, author of Good to Great, Built to Last, et cetera, Great by Choice. Uh, for two years when he was at West Point, he came in once a quarter and I spent two days with him watching him teach and, and, and guide people in, in a deeper understanding of leadership. And what he concluded by the end of his time at West Point was that his favorite, he didn't say this is like the approved solution, but his favorite interpretation and explanation of leadership came from a West Point graduate, General slash President uh, David D. Eisenhower. All right. Um, leadership is the art of getting other people to do what needs to be done mm -hmm. because they want to do it is how he basically summed it up. Right. Uh, there's different, you can look, go back and see like, you know, do you say it exactly yeah. like that? But that's yeah. the core idea. It's, it's an art, not a science. Uh, yes, science and, and data can help inform it, but ultimately it's an art. And that art is really about getting other, other people to do the work. Cause if, if we're talking about you doing the work, then that's not really leadership. That's like you doing the work. <laughs> Right. Uh, number three is the hard stuff because anybody can get people to do the easy stuff. That's pretty easy. My, my three-year-old can say, hey, dad, can you come sit on the couch with me and, and eat some ice cream? Like, sure. Right. Uh, I wouldn't call that leadership. Um, but, you know, if she's to get, to get me to do something hard, hey, dad, can you go, you know, go get, a, a you know, 10 sandbags from up the hill and bring them down here. Right. Uh, and lastly, because they want to do it. Uh, I, th I think the traditional typical model, especially in the military or in hierarchical organizations, right, is that people do things because they're afraid of getting yelled at or getting in trouble or being fired. Uh, and ultimately, that's power, right? When right. people do things for those reasons, they're doing so out of not fear, but like they're doing so out of like compliance and power. And ultimately, uh, even in the military, even in hierarchical organizations, the apex of leadership from Eisenhower's explanation of it is that it's about uh, people wanting to do the hard stuff didn't mean they like actually wanted to storm the beaches of Normandy mm -hmm. or did anyone want, wanted to burn, you know, the, the crap, you know, when you're deployed, but it's like, Hey, like I care about this enough. I care about the people in this mission. I'm on enough that I'm going to go do that hard thing or do that thing that might cost me my life. So going back full circle to why that understanding of leadership is important, like to believe that leadership is a relationship that that's my whole explanation for why people do the hard stuff, um, not out of fear, but because they don't want to let you down right. as their leader. They, they want to make you proud. They, they want to deliver for you, right? And, and that to me is where the relationship comes in. Sure, can someone do that because like, like you're someone famous or like because like maybe, but I think for the most part, what we're aspiring to here is the belief that when there's a relationship there between a leader and his or her followers, that those followers are going to give 100% effort uh, they're going to give their very best. They're going to not drop the ball. They are going to follow through because they don't want to let you down. Right. And my final point on that is because like, there's only one person who knows if, if you're giving hundred percent of your effort, if you're giving your very best and it's you, right. It's very yeah. easy. And especially in the world today to kind of give 75% effort and make it look like a hundred. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately people give hundred percent effort. They give their all right when they really care for, and they know that they're the, lead, the person leading them cares for them. So I appreciate that definition of leadership and that idea of getting people to do what needs to be done because they want to do it. That To me, that sounds like inspiration. Now, uh, I, I yep. believe that a big part of inspiring people is is, a, is cultivating a sense of hope. Uh, that's that's one of the the twenty four character strengths that you can you can measure on the yes, the, the via the via two, and of course in in 
positive psychology and thinking about hope from uh, from that perspective. There's three components to that. There's uh, having having a goal and mm-hmm. uh, setting a, a pathway or helping people to understand that there's there's a way to get there, and then helping them see that they can get there. Uh, or the maybe the energy to use those routes, what they call what they call agency thinking. Now we do this in the in the military all the time, right? When mm-hmm. you when you talk about a mission and a vision statement, you're painting a picture of what the the future looks like. You're saying here's here's our goal, here's our mission, uh, here's how we're going to get there. Follow me, and right, and, and you're absolutely part of that. So that, so I think that's a I, I like that that understanding of leadership as inspiring people. Mm-hmm. And not just using your positional power or authority to yeah. to, to demand that they do what needs to, to be done. Um, so then, what are what are some maybe some more practical tips on how a leader can actually in, inspire the people around them? Yeah. So inspirational leadership is so interesting because it doesn't have to be how I think a lot of people think about. I go back to Tim Tebow and like the chest beaten fire breathing mentality of like, you know, mm-hmm. that is definitely one form of inspirational leadership, but you know, I think it comes in many different forms. And really a lot of it stems from authenticity to who you are. If someone's a very quiet, super humble, thoughtful person, right, them getting out there and pumping their fists and jumping up and down is going to go, people are going to be like, what is, what are you doing? Right. That's not you. But if that same person mm-hmm. who's quiet and humble brings people in and puts their arms around them and like leans in, and speaks with intensity. So I think a lot of it does have to do with how we communicate, right? There's got to be a degree of confidence, a degree of like bringing people together uh, in in terms of the group. And it doesn't need to be like this extroverted, like in your face, you know, sort of, that's me. I'm a big extrovert. I enjoy like the the bigger the stage, the better, the, the more opportunity I have to talk, like the more I like it. But I think there's lots of people out there who are really inspirational leaders just through their quiet resolve, through their character, Mm-hmm. Um, and by leaning in to have those conversations. So that to me is like, like key to understanding what is you know, inspirational leadership look like is that it's going to be different based upon the individual. But I think some of those core principles are how you communicate. Do you infuse belief and confidence into people? Right? Um, you know, do you give them like a path? Even if the situation that they're facing is dire, do you help give them a, and orient them towards a solution and then motivate them to pursue that path? But to me, a lot of it does go to the communication. And then, of course, do you walk the talk? Right. Right. Yeah. You know, because you can't be a leader, sit there and pump people up and give them this like talk and do this and do that. And then, like, you go do the opposite. Like, oh, well, I'm going to go take a nap now. <laughs> right. So, like, there is a leadership by example component here mm-hmm. that I think is essential to, you know, inspirational leadership. And that is that people need to say, hey, oh, wow, you're out there PTing hard yourself. Oh, you're out there jumping with us out of the airplane. You're out there doing that hard thing sometimes, not all the time, right? But, you know, but some of the times so that people know that you're willing to do what you're asking them to go do. Yeah, I think you touched on something I struggled with as a young leader in combat arms before I was a chaplain was that almost a lot of leadership was almost done by intimidation and and positional authority. And, and so, uh, trying to model that, you know, when, you know, that, that's not, that's not me, uh, yeah, at, at all. Totally. So I, I, I kind of had to learn how to do that now, but is leadership, do you have to be in a position, a formal position of leadership to lead that way? Yeah, no, absolutely not. Right. So that's like, that's, that's the big thing here about the definition that, 
can feel destabilizing to people who are in formal leadership positions, right? I call it capital L versus little L. Capital mm -hmm. L, that's like the rank, the tenure, the direct reports, the budget, all the things that sort of give you power, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you are in, inherently, you are in charge of people by very virtue of that power. Uh, but ultimately, the more powerful, uh, the more uh, inspiring you know, element of leadership really comes through lowercase l. And the goal here, of course, is if your capital L is to also have a big focus on lowercase l. And that lowercase l is influence. It's, it's regardless of how old you are. Like you can be, like you'd be the newest person in, in that platoon or in that organization. But if you're out there training harder than people, working out harder, shooting longer, putting in your, putting in the work. Um, if you're, you know, like really going deep and putting in mm -hmm. and sacrificing and committing, like that's going to, that's going to, that's going to buy you influence. You know, yeah. and you see this often, like in the NFL, like when like uh, a, a, a rookie or a second year quarterback is named the captain of the team. Now, again, it's different in the NFL and in sports than it is in the military or in business, but it's just the idea that, you know, if your actions warrant it and like, People often will say it doesn't matter how long you've been around here. Like you are, the, you are the captain of the team, or you are one of the captains, mm -hmm. you know, of, of this organization. You are this, you know, this leader of the team um, or of the company or the the platoon. So, no, it absolutely does not have to be uh, a position you have, and, that, and that's really empowering. Honestly, that's empowering and that's intimidating or scary, perhaps, for people who are in the formal leadership position who has who have worked for fifteen or twenty or thirty years mm -hmm. to get into that position. To be like, wait a minute, like now, like some new person who's like 19 years old or 22 years old can come in and, 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 and have almost as much influence as me. Yeah, they can. Yeah. Right. If they use social media, well, if they communicate well, if they work really hard, if they're really committed, um, that you've got the capacity to lead at a very young age. And so this is this concept that I call is the democratization of leadership. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is, it is much more accessible to people today than ever before. Yeah. My immediate kind of taking in that information. I mean, it's a great point. Uh, the capital L versus the, the lowercase L makes me think about, and you talked about the fear of how, you know, looking at those influencers that are younger, maybe coming in and you're kind of like have that almost defensive, like, is this going to minimize who I am? Um, but really, again, kind of what a lot of your work is about is when you're looking at the organization or an entire team, really for those capital L's is how do you leverage that and use that yes. for growth for everybody, including mm -hmm. yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of magic and power can come within an organization. Love it. hundred percent. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And, and it reinforces that idea that every, everyone's a leader and everyone can be a, a leader no matter where they fall in the organizational chart. I kind of want to shift the conversation a little bit just to be respectful of the time that we, that we have remaining. Um, I was from, as you were uh, sharing that about leadership just a moment ago, I, I distinctly remember a conversation that several of us had when I was a young lieutenant. We got a we, we got a boss, a supervisor, uh, a, a field grade officer who was single. And mm -hmm. we we weren't sure how we felt about that because then we we knew, I mean, this great the guy he was a great leader and very skilled incredibly committed but our first thought was oh no he's never he doesn't have anything to go home to so yeah. we're going to be here until uh, until he goes home right so yeah. uh leaders can can model healthy resiliency 
Now, uh, we've, we've talked about it or you've touched on it a little bit too. Physical fitness and other things are, are there, there are lots of things that are obviously an important part about serving in the military and part of resiliency. Can, can you talk about some of the things maybe that you do to stay sharp or practices that are a part of your life to, to help you stay mentally, emotionally, or spiritually fit and resilient and, and how that, um, how that helps you as a leader. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to the point that I'm just kind of chuckling too, cause like, you know, you remember sometimes, especially when you get like an iron major who would come in and like, yeah, yeah. uh, if they didn't have a good relationship with people, you know, the family back home or they were not married, it often, you know, could mean like that, Hey, like they're going to pour themselves all into their work. And I actually talked about this with a lot of my friends here, um, you know, who are still in the military talking about how that, that perception has really shifted of like, no, like we really want, mm-hmm you know, leaders who are more, ba- you know, who have that balance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, and whether you're single or you're married, divorce doesn't matter. But like the idea of understanding that going all in and being fully obsessed by, you know, this one role, um, in the military, like it can be very problematic as it can over, it can over define you, which can mm-hmm. be a real problem in, in, in transition and reintegration into civilian yeah. life. But also even in the short term, you know, you can, you can make people's lives more challenging outside of work. And then that bleeds over and affects the quality of their work. So yeah, for me, from a resilience standpoint, certainly on the physical, you know, team red, white, and blue, this is what we do. We're a health and wellness community for, for veterans and for guard reserve active duty. Like the power of, of a good workout is almost hard to describe for me when I'm feeling bad. Um, and now it's hard. I get it. Especially if you're like, you're prone to being depressed or down. Um, you know, but like if you can muster up the ability to put on your shoes and get that first that first row or that first lift or that first, you know, 100 meters of the run going, something clicks and something changes. And when I'm done with it, the world just makes a lot more sense mm-hmm. when I'm done with my workout than before I started it. And so, you know, the military understands this deeply. I just I don't think we should underestimate how important it is to keep driving it home. But the power of physical activity is, yes the benefits for physical health, but more importantly, it's for the mental and the emotional. Um, you know, a big part of this as well is I think, you know, having a mindset of, of, you know, developing and growth that like, there's no finish line. Like I'm constantly paranoid that I'm not understanding the world around me, you know? And so we have the ability to listen to books today, like via audible for like 10 bucks a month or something like that. You can get a couple of books a month. Um, you know, these books can take you out of your world and bring you to a, a place that helps you to walk through somebody else's journey um, to help you better understand yours, to take you your mind off of your own journey for a little bit. And I think that's really powerful. You know, and then, you know, spiritually, like, you know, so I'm a cradle Catholic, um, someone who kind of grew up not really having a lot of knowledge about the faith um, and, and about my, you know, my religion, other than like, you know, I just, I, my, my core, my core principles, yeah, there's a guy out there. He's actually his brother is a special forces guy, um, and uh, his name is Father Mike Schmitz. Uh, he has done a Bible in a year, yeah, yeah. and then the, the Catholic Catechism in a year. You know, podcasts, which are fantastic resources to you know operationalize and simplify things that are so deep and so complex. He does an absolutely incredible job doing that. I actually had dinner with him a few weeks ago up in Duluth, Minnesota. The guy is absolutely incredible. You know, but he is like the, essentially the spiritual director, the spiritual guide mm-hmm. for hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people around the world. And, and so if people don't know about him specifically, whether you're Catholic or not, um, he does such a great job at explaining not just the Bible, you know, but then also in a separate podcast, the Catholic Catechism to understand why do Catholics believe this and that. And, and I think both of these are just tremendous resources that 
have helped me develop like from being like a lukewarm, you know, Catholic Christian into somebody who is much more on fire and um, convicted in, in what mm-hmm. I believe now at age 43 than I did certainly five, 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've had several soldiers and leaders say, hey, chaplain, you, you got to listen to that Bible in a Year podcast. It's also a funny story. Uh, my father, Mike Schmitz, was a year ahead of me at St. John's University uh, in Collegeville, Minnesota. He wouldn't, he wouldn't wow. know who I am, but, but I, remember, uh, I remember him from, from those days. I need to get him on the podcast, too. He's amazing. So I, I come from the, the Lutheran tradition too. And when it comes to resiliency, there's a there's a famous Luther quote. He said, I've basically, or par- I'll paraphrase, he said, I've got a lot to do today. So I, I should spend three hours in prayer today instead of two. Two, yeah. And, totally. Right, so, I, I mean, physical fitness is the same way or those, those spiritual practices that can kind of center us and ground us and give us a, a healthy perspective. It feels like when we have the least amount of time to do that stuff, that's when we need it the most. Totally. That's 100%. 100% correct. And I love that one of your your first go-tos in that answer was uh, the physicality thing. I think it's something that's, you know, um, underutilized and discussed a lot. And no matter what your fitness level is, uh, like here in Oregon, love hiking. It's beautiful when you get a chance. When it's not raining, get out. Um, we've got a lot of beautiful areas to explore and see. There's still so much of this state that I still need to soak up. So, I loved hearing that answer. Oh yeah, absolutely. So you, so you talked about listening to to books uh, on 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 Audible. Um, I guess maybe first question: it Can if you listen to it, can you tell people that you read the book? And then, uh, <laughs> it's right. a good question. You know, then, I, I think so. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna say yes that you can still say I read it even though you technically yeah. listen to it. Yeah. I, I think I think I think you can say that yeah. too. Um, and and we do emphasize that leaders are readers and that you, you've got to be kind of careful what you consume and intentional about the media that you consume, whether that's podcasts or books. Any particular? Uh, I know you've got a couple of great books out there. Any other books that you've read recently yeah. or, or podcasts that you would? Uh, suggest whether that's leadership, resiliency, or or anything else that that might kind of enrich our lives. Yeah, phenomenal. Uh, you know, Tim Ferriss is really good. Mm-hmm. He actually had on a great one. A specific episode to references with Arthur Brooks about a month ago. He just co-authored a book with Oprah Winfrey. A fantastic two-hour and fifty-four minute podcast that I can't recommend enough um, in terms about how to design and build a life. You know that you know that will give you mm-hmm. fulfillment, not happiness, but fulfillment. Yeah. So I definitely listen, you know, uh, to some Tim Ferriss when I've got more time. But Simon Sinek, you know, a hint of optimism, I think it's called. Um, that's that's a really good podcast. You know, uh, and then I mentioned before Father Mike Bible in the Year, Catechism in the Year. But then, you know, in terms of books, yeah, I, I would go with two that I think are really important right now in terms of resilience and just beyond. One is Range by David Epstein. And I think that's a really, really powerful book that explains the power of being a generalist in the world, mm. you know, um, and not overly like, you know, so, so narrowly focused, um, you know, as the world is changing a lot, it gives you options. It gives you the ability to do different things. Um, and then the comfort crisis by Michael Easter, oh, yeah. um, absolutely powerful book talks a lot about physicality and the role of physical fitness and, and physical activity in the world, but ultimately, how comfort creep has kind of crept in around us for the past 20, 30 years, especially, and, and how it's, you know, in many ways hurt us, not, not just physically, but also mentally uh, as well. And that's just an absolutely fantastic read that I read about 
six months ago. Um, you know, and then last one for the history people out there, for people who are really interested, you might've heard this book before called the fourth turning. It kind of analyzes the patterns of history. Um, and a re-release of the book just came out like a couple months ago, but it's really good. And it kind of breaks down history into these cycles, uh, these secula, uh, where you can kind of see how, um, one generation affects the next and the next, and, and then how there's ultimately crisis moments that resolve and, it's a really thought-provoking book um, called The Fourth Turning. No, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, well, Stephen, too, th- thank you so much for sharing your your time with us today. God, God bless you and your family and the work that you do to to promote uh, health and wellness and and healthy healthy leadership uh, and character development. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, you guys. Appreciate the opportunity to connect today. Hope that this message reaches uh, some people and that it makes a small impact on their lives. And that's all you can ever hope for you know, a conversation to do. So I appreciate the opportunity and hope you guys have a great day. You as well. Take care. And, and Lord willing, we'll, we'll cross paths sometime, but maybe before or even after you retire. That's right. In person. In Thanks. Person. Thanks, Mike. This podcast is produced by the Oregon National Guard Public Affairs Office. My prayer for you is that wherever you find yourself, that you might find hope for today and strength for the ambiguity and chaos of life. Blessings on the rest of your day.